You know, I think it becomes um, psychological almost. Uh, either they don't want somebody to choose somebody as their successor who will uh, outperform them and show them up. It seemed like that was the case with Bob Iger. And I, I think on some subliminal basis, it might have been the case with Jack Welch as well. I'm Mary Long, and that's William Cohen, a founding partner of the digital news company, Puck. He's also the author of Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. It's July 4th weekend, so we're highlighting some of our favorite conversations from the year. Back in January, Ricky Mulvey caught up with Cohen to talk about his corporate autopsy of General Electric. They discussed what caused the fall of one of America's most powerful companies, the key differences between former CEOs Jack Welch and Jeff Immelt, and why large companies struggle with leadership succession. Joining us now is William Cohen. He's the author of Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. Talking General Electric today and appreciate you joining us on Motley Fool Money. Thank you, Ricky, for having me. So, uh, General Electric is this myth-making machine. It, that was one of the key things I picked up from your book. It was born on a myth of Thomas Edison's involvement, and possibly it may be dying even on myths such as uh, John Flannery's ouster. When you were researching General Electric and, and doing these interviews, I know you worked there for, for a couple of years. Was there any ideas that you held to be true that turned out to be myth that surprised you in the process? No, absolutely. You know, right from the outset, in fact, you know, it, it was always sort of drummed into uh, not only employees' heads, uh, but of course, everybody's uh, in, in America's head that, you know, Thomas Edison uh, was one of the founders, uh, you know, was the founder of GE. I mean, and if you go to the research center uh, outside of Albany, you know, you walk into this incredibly big place and the lobby is filled with Thomas Edison sort of memorabilia. But in fact, you know, he had very little to do with the founding of the company. He was against the founding of the company uh, and the, the merger that created the company. And uh, he very quickly uh, sold the stock that he had that uh, resulted from the merger. And he was never an executive of the company. The first executive was this guy, uh, Charles Coffin, who was quite a remarkable businessman and a leader of the company. I mean, that's just one example. This this company then becomes one of the largest in, in American history, or it becomes the largest by market cap uh, at the time in, in the 20th century. And one of its major problems that a lot of companies face is, is finding a CEO. Your book highlights sort of the, the pageantry involved in, in General Electric's uh, succession process. Uh, Jack Welch had to participate in, in a letter writing contest. He had to be very, it was, it was sort of this reality show style um, elimination thing where, where the CEO at the time, Reg Jones, is keeping all the contenders very, very close. He ends up rejecting that in, in looking for his CEO, maybe to, maybe to his detriment in Jeff Immelt, but he still makes Jeff Immelt give a, a sort of the sales pitch to the board, right? So whether it's, it's, it's General Electric or recently at Disney, you have very smart people who know these jobs very well, and yet they seem to have so much trouble finding successors for the CEO seat. Why do you think these these seeming these these smart people who know the job well struggle so mightily with that process? You know, I think it becomes um, psychological almost. Uh, either they don't want 
somebody to choose somebody as their successor who will uh, outperform them and show them up. Uh, that certainly was the case. It seemed like that was the case with Bob Iger. And I, I think on some subliminal basis, it might have been the case with Jack Welch as well, choosing somebody who on some level, you know, they thought would do a good job and certainly endorsed when they first announced the choice. But maybe on some level uh, knew that they would not do a particularly good job and would not somehow supersede their uh, own uh, performance as CEO. Beyond that, I mean, you know, people are people. It's hard to know how someone is actually going to perform in the job once they have it. People are very good sort of politicians sometimes and, uh, you know, very good at sucking up to get what they want. And then when they actually get the job, they may never have been qualified for it. I appreciate the the complex picture you've you've given to Welch. I think a lot of his legacy has been turned into to headlines of of this is good or bad. When when really it's it's a complex person with who did some terrible things. He was uh, abrasive. He was a womanizer. He also helped develop CEOs and and created one of the most valuable companies in American history. He also encouraged disagreement, dissenting opinions among the people who worked for him. So why did so many of the people you spoke with, you think, actually enjoy working with Neutron Jack? I mean, you know, that's an important, important point. All of the people who I spoke with who were uh, senior GE executives really appraised Jack and the opportunity they had to work for him and his willingness to, you know, get the most out of them, uh, to believe in them and to support them and to welcome dissenting opinions, being sort of a fun guy uh, to be around, uh, and to really giving them huge opportunities that they wouldn't have had elsewhere. Now, obviously, uh, I didn't talk to the uh, people who felt tormented by him, uh, or, or, you know, they were much harder to find, and you know, they were not uh, in the company uh, after, you know, he sort of got rid of them. But I mean, even just taking one example of of Dave Cody, who Jack fired when he was uh, head of the uh, major appliance business at, at GE, which was probably the, the most poorly performing business, and who went on to become the CEO, the very successful CEO of Honeywell. And in fact, at one point, Honeywell's market cap was higher than GE's. And even Dave Cody, who was fired by Jack and didn't understand why, you know, praised him to the hilt. So uh, he did engender an incredible amount of loyalty, uh, at least among the survivors and the ones who would talk to me. Um, clearly, the people who he insulted or made fun of or was, you know, fired early on probably don't have a whole lot of love for him. One of the greatest legacies was his ability to consistently hit earnings estimates that Wall Street analysts would say you're going to hit X sales, X earnings, and he hit it to a penny with with great consistency. GE Capital was one of the ways, was one of the levers that he was able to pull uh, in order to do that. Bit of a two part question: setting the table, what would it have meant if General Electric in in the Jack Welch era missed earnings by just a penny? We came in one penny sh- short of earnings, because in my mind it almost would have given those numbers a little bit more legitimacy to say, nope, you guys were off by a penny. And yet it was so important to Welch at the time and, and many CEOs to consistently hit earnings estimates, if only by that that single cent. 
Yeah, I mean, part of what Jack was able to do is uh, create a, a, a cult of Jack among Wall Street research analysts, most of whom were had followed the company for a long time, knew well the industrial side of the business, but not the G capital or financial side of the business. Uh, and they came to rely on Jack's promise of uh, the earnings numbers that he would project to make every quarter. You know, and, and, and along the way, as you point out, you know, I think it was like 80 straight quarters, uh, Jack hit those numbers to the penny or a penny over, uh, uh, never under. Uh, and that's how GE, which w had a AAA credit rating, was the most valuable company uh, in the world uh, for a period of time and the most respected, never missed uh, earnings. And Jack just felt like this was his religion, in effect. Uh, you know, if he told the analysts what he was going to do, uh, he was intent on doing it. And, uh, you know, he, he tells the story in his own book, which I uh, asked him about and uh, repeat the story in, in my book. Uh, when, it, when after he had bought Kidder Peabody, which turned out to be a disastrous uh, acquisition, and and Kidder, you know, Kidder did something in one quarter that was going to uh, make Jack miss his numbers. Uh, he actually went to uh, the other division heads and said, you know, can you generate? Can you give me something so that I can make sure that uh, I make these earnings, uh, that we make these earnings? And they all sort of coughed up some sort of uh, profit uh, number or some sort of contribution to the uh, gap that was created by Kidder Peabody to make it possible for uh, Jack to, you know, and GE to make the number that quarter, which was kind of prima facie evidence of earnings manipulation. And of course, he was trying to convince me the whole time that he never did that. But it was, uh, and yet he's a, sort of admitting it in his own own book that he pressured uh, everybody to come up with what he needed. So he 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 uh, really just was, as I say, it was this was his religion, uh, making those numbers every quarter, and it was very effective. When Jack took over the company, it was worth twelve billion. Uh, you know, in August of two thousand, you know, nine months or so before he left, uh, the company was worth six hundred and fifty billion. So, uh, you know, that's quite a increase in value. And that's basically the job of the CEO is to do that kind of thing. So to set the table a little bit, Kidder Peabody was was a was a Wall Street investment bank that when it joined GE, there was a severe culture clash between the General Electric Capital uh, folks and, and the, the Kidder Peabody uh, investment banking folks. So both Immelt and Welch used GE Capital, to my understanding, I could be totally wrong, is, is sort of a candy store to, to hit a lot of earnings numbers. In Immelt's case, he gave himself maybe loftier expectations, this sort of $2 earnings per share mantra. And um, Welch was just kind of consistently hitting, hitting those earnings numbers. So how did both of them use GE Capital as that sort of candy store to, to hit earnings numbers? And do you think Welch was better at the manipulation, or was Immelt unlucky. So, Jack, sort of before he became CEO, one of his uh, final tests was to take over the running of G Capital. You know, Jack did not have a finance background. He was an engineer uh, and he ran the plastics division and made the plastics division at GE incredibly commercial and incredibly profitable. Uh, but he took to G capital, like a duck to water. He really sort of got off on this 
uh, ability of uh, to arbitrage GE's AAA credit rating, uh, which allowed GE Capital to borrow very cheaply in the commercial paper markets and then lend out to customers and clients uh, rather expensively. And I, you know, when I was there, I was financing leveraged buyouts, and we would get complaints all the time from customers that we were over, you know, charging more than Wall Street charged and other banks. And, uh, you know, we were so pricey. But in fact, I think really what we were doing is actually charging appropriately for the risks we were taking. But Jack really got that into a well-oiled machine. I also spent a year working for the chief credit officer at G Capital. So I got to see all the businesses at G Capital and, you know, how they generated incredible amount of earnings and really how clever they were under Gary Went to, you know, become an earnings machine. And, uh, you know, over time, G Capital became the most important business at GE, which most people didn't recognize or realize. 40% of the earnings under Immult, it was 50% of the earnings. Now, you know, so by the time Jack turned it over to Jeff Immelt, uh, G Capital was generating between 40 and 50% of GE's earnings. Uh, and it was a well-oiled machine, first under Gary Went and then under Dennis Naden. Uh, but, you know, Jeff Immelt was in part unlucky because, of course, he started uh, as a CEO on uh, his first day in the office was uh, September 10th, 2001. And the next day, of course, was September 11th. And he was in Seattle. And, of course, the world changed. GE made the engines on those jets, uh, had reinsured the buildings down at the World Financial Center, owned NBC, which went uh, without advertising uh, for at least a week after 9-11, costing the company hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And, of course, they, you know, there was the scandals involving big companies like Enron and WorldCom that resulted in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act being passed, which was much more stringent and required uh, CEOs to sign off on financial statements. But nevertheless, throughout that, G Capital continued to perform. Uh, and I just think that Jeff didn't understand G Capital as well as Jack did and didn't understand the risks as well and didn't have the same team in place that Jack did. And so come the 2008 financial crisis, people didn't really realize it at the time because everyone was focused on what was going on on Wall Street, which was, of course, a meltdown. But GE Capital also melted down. But unlike uh, the Wall Street banks, wasn't regulated by the Fed. Uh, and so, uh, you know, or wasn't uh, regulated really in the same way by the SEC as they were. And basically, Jeff Immelt had to go hat in hand to uh, Hank Paulson, the Treasury Secretary, and Sheila Baer, the head of the FDIC, to get included in the various lines of credit that were being made available to banks so that GE Capital wouldn't be at a disadvantage to the other banks. You know, essentially, he just did not like uh, the, the price that he had to pay for that uh, protection and keeping GE Capital out of bankruptcy, which would have happened. When GE Capital became a SIFI, a systemically important financial institution, Jeff Emlade ha hated that even more and eventually made the decision to sell GE Capital uh, 
which, you know, getting back to your $2 a share uh, proclamation that he kept making uh, that they were going to do in 2018. By then, he had sold off G Capital and bought back, using the proceeds, had bought back $35 billion or so worth of GE stock at a high price and could never make that $2 a share uh, number, even though he kept promising it over and over again. And people told him that they weren't going to make it, but he insisted that they were. And essentially, that's what cost him his job. I want to talk about Jeff Immelt for a little bit because you have a fantastic anecdote in the story where he he has this security guard named Ed Galanick, and he forces essentially forces the guy to climb Mount Kilimanjaro with him. And I think this is illustrative of of the way he ran GE of uh, essentially not listening to others, even in very serious circumstances, and essentially only listening to opinions that affirmed his own. Ed Galanick was you, you describe him as sort of this like tough East Coaster who who had no business doing a, a climbing a mountain, and he even says to Imelt, "quote and I'm going to paraphrase." I think it's really unfair to kill me just to have a court jester go up a mountain. So this is to say, did you, you spent time with Jeff Immelt. Did you get to, a chance to ask him about his side of the story on this, or, or were you focused on other, understandably focused on other things? I was uh, focused on many, many other things, but of course I asked him about the trip up Kilimanjaro, and he didn't want to talk about it. So that was one thing for some reason he didn't want to talk about, um, maybe because he knew uh, or maybe he didn't know what Ed Galanick had told me. And by the way, you know, speaking to Ed Galanick was was total serendipity because it turns out that after Ed uh, Galanick was working directly for Jeff as his, you know, head of security. He ended ended up when I met him. He was working sort of at the security door at CNBC in Times Square. So when I would go and be on CNBC, you know, Ed Galanick would be the guy to let me in the door. And, you know, he eventually figured out that I was the guy writing this book about GE. And so he just, you know, kept pulling me aside and couldn't wait to tell me all these various stories with, that he was on the record for in the book, including this story of Kilimanjaro, which, you know, I just think is the most revealing, as you said, story about Jeff and forcing poor Ed Galanek, who had, you know, I mean, Jeff had trained you know, because this was his daughter's uh, uh, graduation from college wish, you know, he said to her, you know, I I've been preoccupied with GE, you know, I probably haven't been the best father, you know, and you graduated from college, what do you want to do? I'll do anything you want, I'll go anywhere you want. And she said, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. So, you know, she had trained and her friend that came with them had trained and Jeff had trained, you know, such as you can to climb uh, a mountain. But Ed Galanick had not trained and uh, did not want to go and Jeff forced him to go and literally I think it almost killed Ed Galanick. Uh, he was very good natured about it when he told me about it. He, he thought it was kind of like a lark even though he, he, you know, he, it was very dangerous for him and he never even made it to the top because he had to turn back and I just couldn't believe that Jeff had forced this and of course Jeff didn't want to talk about that because he, he knew what he had done it sort of uh, was over the bounds. 
one of Immelt's most famous deals was was selling NBC Universal. Immelt described it as a luxury that it could no longer afford. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. But one of the things going on is is uh, NBC Universal was being prepared to be sold. Was that they would make these random cuts to programming and content? We need to get X or what was it like a hundred million dollars of expenses off before the end of the year, and then we're going to reposition this production schedule to fit in better with our expense management. Now you might be seeing a similar situation at Warner Brothers Discovery, where it's the, the company is, is slashing and burning content. You have some of the similar players of David Zaslav running Warner Brothers Discovery. Is your studying of the history of NBC Universal influence your, your viewpoint that perhaps Warner Brothers Discovery may be prepared for, uh, for getting sold or, or combined into another company? Well, I've been uh, writing at uh, Puck uh, regularly about my sense that NBC Universal, which is now owned by Comcast, and Warner Brothers Discovery, which is, of course, run by David Zaslav in a public company, that they're both sort of, they, they kind of need each other, and they're both undersized compared to, to Disney uh, and, you know, the threats posed to their business model by uh, Amazon and Apple, which obviously are much larger capitalized companies, uh, much bigger. And so uh, I've been sort of advocating, you know, for the last, uh, you know, six months or so, the inevitable combination between NBC Universal and Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, of course, you know, the, the people at those companies, you know, poo-poo it at the moment because, of course, they have to because of the uh, rules that allowed Warner Brothers, uh, dis, you know, discovery to be formed in the first place under the Morris Trust, reverse Morris Trust rules. And under those rules, you know, there can't be a change of uh, ownership or a change of structure for two years. So that would put it at uh, April 2024. However, both, uh, there's no question that uh, they, they need each other. And uh, I suspect uh, at some point soon those discussions will begin if they haven't started already, even though there won't be any announcement uh, for some time. It takes a long time to figure out the structure of that kind of complicated combination, uh, and as well as any regulatory approval uh, would take a very long time, too. So I, I suspect that it'll, it'll happen. Uh, you know, David Zaslov um, is really a pioneer in cable business and has, I think, you know, done a good job leading Discovery. Uh, he probably got snookered a little bit by the ATT folks who loaded up Warner Brothers Discovery with $55 billion of debt, which was sort of the price of admission for David uh, Zaslav to get control of the old time Warner. And then now he's got to sort of live with that burden. So I think that's why he's cutting and burning, slashing and burning. Uh, as best he can to make sure that the EBITDA for Warner Brothers Discovery uh, is what he's telling the street it is. Uh, you know, the good news is that after a pretty bad 2022 where the stock fell something like 60%, uh, it's sort of off to the races uh, so far this year. Up, It was up like 18% last time I checked. But I think the combination of the two is pretty much inevitable, even though I may be uh, among only a handful of people who who believe that at the moment. What, what makes it, it corporations don't necessarily have to merge; they can they can exist and live and die on their own. What makes it inevitable? 
Well, what I think makes it inevitable is just the competitive landscape and the ambitions of the people involved. Uh, you know, Brian Roberts has always been, you know, ambitious for Comcast to make it, you know, as big as it is, a $200 billion uh, market value company. But I think, you know, he clearly got uh, NBC Universal at a bargain price from GE. Jeff Immelt sold it without an auction, uh, you know, s- you know, soon after uh the financial crisis in 2009 you know at, at one point pre-pandemic that business was probably worth about 100 billion uh the pandemic has been kind of rough uh, on linear tv uh and so those numbers are down uh and so I'm sure Brian Roberts is smart enough to know that NBC Universal is no longer a size where it can compete effectively against against Disney or Apple or Amazon. Uh, you know, the streaming business, uh, you know, is costing him a lot of money. And also, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery is uh, sort of subsized and has a lot of great assets, uh, but too much debt, as we were talking about, um, you know, struggling kind of on the EBITDA line. Uh, and it's got its own costs related to, to the streaming business. So combining the two would make for a major league competitor to Disney and Apple and Amazon uh, and would help spread out that debt uh, over more assets and more cash flow. And so uh, it might mean that, of course, uh, Comcast has to control 51% of it because I think Brian Roberts would want to have uh, at least ownership uh, control uh, as he did during the first phase of the NBC Universal deal. But I think it was a deal that could get done that would allow uh, David Zaslav to run the combined company, uh, which is, I think, his goal. So I think there's a way to make it all worthwhile and make a major league competitor to Disney. As we get towards the end of the conversation, going to turn it back to, to General Electric, you've described your book as a corporate autopsy. Do you have a time of death? I, I, there, there's, there's plenty of finger-pointing reasons, and, and those can be found in the pages, but do you have a time of death for your corporate autopsy of General Electric? There were um, a, a number of important moments uh, where uh, the death spiral began. Uh, among them, the decision to sell NBCU in 2009 without an auction for a, a total of around $30 billion to Comcast. That was uh, number one. Uh, number two was the decision to buy Alstom and wildly overpay for it when uh, actually Jeff probably could have gotten out of the deal and chose not to and chose to close the deal. Uh, that was number two. Number three was the decision to uh, sell GE Capital and you know, make an announcement that you were doing that so buyers knew that you had to sell it uh, and uh, probably got his pocket picked by some smart uh, buyers like Blackstone and Wells Fargo. And number four was uh, bringing in uh, Nelson Peltz at Tryon Partners to uh, as as a hedge fund, an activist hedge fund. You know, Jeff's idea was he was going to sort of ratify his brilliant uh, recreation of the company. And uh, of course, with Nelson Peltz, there's no such bargain. Uh, and when uh, it was clear that he wasn't going to achieve this two dollars a share, that was the end of Jeff, uh, and frankly, the end of 
uh, the company because, you know, uh, as John Flannery, who took over from Jeff Ilmold, quickly discovered there were, you know, hidden time bombs that Jeff had not really uh, addressed, shall we say, uh, uh, that Jeff, uh, John Flannery had to address and announce. So I don't know, the, t the time the time of the death was probably uh, uh, when uh, Jeff Immelt got fired in uh, June of uh, 2000, uh, 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 what was it, 17, I guess. So that was probably the end of it, uh, even though it took, you know, uh, a few more years for the plug to finally get pulled. It was basically in hospice from June 2017 on. William Cohen, he's the author of Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. He's the co-founder of Puck, or founder, excuse me, of Puck as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Motley Fool Money. I appreciate your time and uh, recommend the book. It's, it's a thorough and engaging uh, history of one of the most uh, powerful icons of American history. Thank you very much for having me. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Mary Long. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.